Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Uh, dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for all of the ways in which it presses and prods us. And yet, Lord, as um, perhaps irritating and uncomfortable as it is to grow in uh, wise thoughtfulness, uh, it is all the more comforting, uh, wonderful, encouraging, and soul-delighting to realize the ways in which our redemption in Jesus Christ shapes everything we do, every thought we have. And so Lord, we ask that we um, bathe our minds in your word, that we submit our thoughts to your thoughts, and that we give you as your church um, our hearts, our hands, and our hopes. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Justice. Social justice. Social justice warriors. I'm sure for each of us, We're fine with the word justice, but as adjectives are added to it, our hearts involuntarily are met with some sort of emotion, maybe cheers of agreement, maybe bracing for impact. And in our 24-7 news cycle, you are forced, we are forced to read, react, consume, respond, and act out of our thoughts on racism, poverty, criminal justice, immigration, fraud, political activism. But one of the wonderful benefits we have in the book of Proverbs as we are continuing our study through it is that it allows us to actually slow down and think slowly in a world that demands rapid responses. We're actually gonna look more at that idea of slowing down um, and thinking in the book of Proverbs in a couple weeks. But this discipline of slowing and thinking is a discipline that is critical when it comes to understanding how the Bible talks about justice and how we understand it. That's what we're gonna be looking at if you would open your Bibles, if you haven't yet done so, to Proverbs chapter 14. And when it comes to justice, if we're gonna be uh, overly generalizing here, there are two camps. Each camp is admirable in a certain way and each camp is lacking in a certain way. And I'm sure you can see as I discuss these camps, you could see these people on Facebook and you can maybe even feel these camps in your own heart. The first camp is the camp that cries justice or bust. They as individuals understand the weighty ideas of justice and equality. And they actually see these two topics as something the Bible speaks very clearly on and which the Bible expects Christians to practice in their own life. But their fault in the justice or bust camp is perhaps they don't define justice biblically or even at all, or they overestimate the role justice will play as a human-powered effort in undoing what sin has ruined in our fallen world. That's justice or bust. The other camp is justice for whom? 
these individuals realize that something has to be the basis of justice. There is some idea, some thing, some principle, which needs to be clear because equality undefined creates anarchy. But their fault is that they look at a world which is despairingly broken and they recognize that justice is complex, convoluted, perhaps impossible in some ways. And so instead, they fail to understand the weight and responsibility which God's word actually places on the Christian to carry those convictions and those principles into your heart, into your mind, and into your lives. And the problem of each of these camps is actually the same diagnosis when the Bible speaks to it. And that is that each, justice or bust or justice for whom, lacks wisdom. It's really easy to flatten justice into everything or to crush justice into nothing, but the wisdom of Proverbs refuses to let us think too simplistically about justice. When Solomon talks about justice, what he's really talking about, and this is where it peels back whatever you think to where we should start, when he talks about justice, he's really talking about how we relate to others. And this relational fruit is a response of biblical wisdom. It understands how we relate to God first and foremost, how we understand ourselves and how we relate to others. And we've actually seen this diverse understanding of relational wisdom already in the book of Proverbs. Look back with me at Proverbs chapter one, two through three. And so here, Solomon is telling us why he's giving us the Proverbs. Verse two, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, in righteousness, justice, and equity. What does the Proverbs produce? What are these wise dealings? He says three things, righteousness, justice, and equity. Look again at Proverbs two, verse nine through 10. So he's calling us to the path of justice in verse eight, he's, which is calling us to the path of wisdom. We see that earlier in verses one through six. And then in verse nine, what is the fruit? Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. In other words, to get God's wisdom, which is to see the world through God's eyes, seen primarily in the problem of sin, the glory of God, and the solution of Jesus Christ, is to produce a fruit, which Solomon says impacts us in three ways, righteousness, justice, and equity. That is that you as an individual understand righteousness that you understand your desire to conform your life to God's perfect standard of holiness through Jesus Christ. That is secondly, that you understand justice in your decision-making and your judgment of those who are around you. And then lastly, that you would understand equity or fairness in how you treat and speak to others. To put it simply for the sake of us today, justice is simply one piece of God's whole relationship ethics. And if you don't plan on living with anyone else or interacting with anyone else, you probably don't need this sermon today. 
But if you plan on living with people, interacting with people, or to know people, then this is part of the way in which God calls us to consider himself and to consider others. An ethic is simply a framework of how we discern what is right and what is wrong. And here, wisdom gives us a relational ethic which shapes how we view righteousness, justice, and equity. But just as we've seen in Proverbs, Righteousness is not just conformity to something that is right. It's rooted in this relational knowledge of God. And so too is justice. Justice is not an arbitrary principle. Fairness and truth is not an arbitrary principle. They are actually known exclusively when we want to know them truly in a relationship with God himself. Look at what Proverbs 28.5 says. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Our world speaks often of justice, and yet if we want to know justice and understand it as Solomon says completely, then you must seek the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is the one who is just. The Lord is the only one who is truly equitable. The Lord is the only one who is righteous. The Lord is the only one who embodies relational ethics in a way that is always true and faithful. Christians ought to be leaders in the area of righteousness, justice, and equity. Why? Because we see Jesus most clearly in his salvation. Where our world and both the justice or bust or justice for whom camps often talk about justice as something out here, Solomon does something wonderful and he says justice is something that starts in here. It's a result of how you view yourselves, how you view others, and most importantly, how you view God. Justice as the world speaks of it is really the fruit of relational wisdom as God speaks of it. And this idea of relational wisdom, which impacts righteousness, justice, and equality is what we're gonna see today in our text in Proverbs chapter 14. We're gonna see it in three ways. First, we're gonna see that relational wisdom is realizing that your neighbor matters. We're gonna look primarily at verses 20 and 21 for that. Next, in verses 22 through 25, we're gonna see that relational wisdom is realizing that our own actions matter. And then lastly, in verses 26 and 27, we're gonna see that relational wisdom is realizing that God matters. So that's what we're gonna look at, how relational wisdom shapes the way we view ourselves, view others, and view God. And let's begin by looking at our first few verses in Proverbs 14, verses 20 and 21. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. We look at also verse 31, picks up on this theme. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, that is, the maker. And so one of my favorite phrases in all the human language is the phrase, a sticky wicket. Um, I don't know what it means, British people say it, but here we see the sticky wicket of wisdom. And that is that justice, equality, and righteousness is more diverse than we ever think. Because when we look at this text, we can see initially, because our 
intention in Proverbs is always to grab what's clear and simple instead of like we did last week to slow down, right? Proverbs read fast, but they think slow. When we look at this, we say this text is about generosity because that's where it ends. It ends with giving to the poor. Blessed is the one who gives to the poor. And we'll see that theme a lot in Proverbs. The point of Proverbs is not to make you stingy, but Solomon is after something a lot bigger than generosity. In fact, he's after something which generosity in itself cannot actually fix. And that something is the natural disposition of our hearts towards partiality and favoritism. And what actually struck me the most as I was looking at what Proverbs says about relationships and diving into chapter four and, or 14 and how our hearts respond to others is that we often, in thinking about justice, strip relationships from it. As we think of justice as this idea that exists out there, but Solomon often talks about justice in a relational context. Central to Solomon's justice is the beginning point of actually friendship with people and what motivates the friendships that we have. Here we see in chapter 14, verse 20 and 21, that the poor person doesn't have friends. He is disliked, even hated by those closest to him, his neighbor. But the rich person has many friends. And what struck me as odd is this is a theme that's repeated all over in Proverbs. In fact, turn forward a few chapters to Proverbs chapter 19. Look at how Solomon speaks of the same issue in Proverbs 19, verses four through seven. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. And so here's why these passages are so convicting for me as I was examining them this week. Because we tend to think in terms of these broad, easy absolutes, right? And so Solomon, it talks in this passage about lying in court to get what you want. In verse 31, he talks about those who are actively oppressing the poor. A constant reprieve in Proverbs is that uh, God abhors the one who takes a bribe in order to, to had his own comfort in life. And when I read those things, and maybe when you read those things, we give ourselves passing grades. Not many of us this week have extorted people of their wages. We have not oppressed them. We have not taken a bribe from them. And we say, we are doing excellent. But this is why Proverbs is such an irritating sticky wicket. Solomon is not simply after defrauding people. He's actually after befriending people who have little to offer you. People who in this case, Proverbs 14, are the poor. Now, it's not that I don't have friends who qualify as poor, friends who make less money than me, but this common denominator that all of the people Proverbs talks about who are prone to be marginalized or at risk what they share in common is that they have little to provide in whatever context it is, be that financial, emotional, relational, entertainment, sexual. In fact, in, 
he, in the Hebrew language, there are six words that Proverbs uses to describe those who are at risk to be marginalized or oppressed. And in English, in the ESV we're looking at today, those six words are reduced down to five words being the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the widow, and the orphan. And even the poor, there are two senses behind the words that are used. The poor man who has no friends in chapter 14 is a word which means kind of what we think of as poor. Those who lack monetary access, who lack wealth, who lack property, who lack possessions. But also, the poor who is without friends in chapter 19, that word means the one who is insignificant, or literally, it comes from the root, the one who is made tiny or made little. The one who emotionally, relationally, has very few things to offer. In other words, the bigger contrast that Solomon is after is not just that we don't like the poor and that we like the rich. It's that we are prone, our hearts are naturally prone towards relationships where we get things and they are more hesitant and even unwilling to go into relationships where we might have to give things. That's not to say that we're not generous people. I look at our church and we have a generous church with finances and with relational equity. And as Sarah and I were talking earlier this week, we often look and see services we offer and how consumeristic we offer them. Yeah, we will offer childcare, but only to those we trust to watch our kids in return. <laughs> or we'll offer childcare to families with kids who are generally well-behaved. We often invite people over for dinner as a church, but are our invitations to come over and have lunch after church on Sunday or before community group on Tuesday, are those generally only offered to those who we actually want to reciprocate the offer? Whose home wouldn't make us feel awkward? Whose neighborhood wouldn't cause us to make sure our doors are locked? There's like two neighborhoods in Almazula where that happens. But do we limit that? It's easy to offer help to someone who's sick if you know that when you're sick, they have the resources to offer you assistance. This is not a critique of not only why we often turn away from those who lack, but it's actually a critique of how we might be burdens to those who have. Both realities flatten the humanity of the individual. One says, you can't provide for me anything and so you're unworthy of my affection. The other says, you're worthy of my, perfect, of my affection and my relationship only because of what you provide for me. You see, behind our relationships is the subtle expectation of what can you provide for me? Or even worse, you owe me. But Solomon says to look at the neighbor who is near you and to turn away from them because of what they lack or of their insignificance is not only to despise your neighbor, but it is to sin against God. This is not merely, now the Old Testament is unique, right? It's this theocratic, God had this national physical people in Israel and maybe that was unique, but this was a New Testament problem too. 
The apostle James speaks of this in the book of James and look at how he describes what is literally two different individuals coming into the gathered church. Look at James 2 verses 1 through 9. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention, what abiding line. Before he gets into how we act, he gets it how we perceive. If these two people come in and you pay attention to one over the other, ask yourself, why? That is a terrifying question to ask your heart. He continues. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and says, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Sin naturally turns all of our affections inward. We love ourselves. But God is so incredibly gracious that he actually gives us certain contexts where our heart naturally turns outwards. It is an amazing grace when you see someone who walks into church, who has the same station in life, the same number of kids, and the same clothes that you wear. It is a grace that you would say, I want to go talk to that person. What a wonderful mercy of God that we should do that. But that is to say we should work all the more harder to understand what it's like to pay attention to those who do not dress like us, look like us, talk like us, spend like us, or live like us. You see, it is common grace that we would pay attention to those to whom it is natural by the flesh. It is a special grace of God inside of his church that we would pay attention to those in a way that is natural to us by the gospel. You see, one of the risks of these marginalized groups in Proverbs that they often have no friend, which is just astounding to think about. Proverbs 18.23 says this, the poor uses entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. In other words, the poor have to go to great lengths to even be heard. They have to pick their words so incredibly carefully. They have to scour their closets and go get a job with borrowed clothes. They have to do all of these really intricate things 
and yet the rich can answer them harshly, which means when they are extorted due to their marginalization, if we look at Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 19, not only are they answered harshly, but they are incredibly alone. They have no advocate when marginalized. When they are stolen from, they have no one with which to share a meal. You see, the biggest thing I take away from this chapter this week is that the first step towards fighting for biblical justice is fighting for biblical friendship. That's a friendship which realizes what is worthy of paying attention to in the lives of those around us. What is the common denominator by which God tells us to view people? Look back at Proverbs 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. How can we begin to be generous with our relationships and with our resources to those around us? We realize that they too are made in the image of God that they are made by the maker of heaven and earth. Proverbs 22, two says that the poor and rich meet together and the Lord is the maker of them all. What do you share in common with the person who seems most distant from you? You share the same Lord and you share the same call to repent and come to Christ and be one to him, not by what you can do, but what, by, Jesus, by what Jesus has done for you. We were made to enjoy God forever. We were made to have the same love for the creator who loved us and sent his son for us. Do you know this maker? Do you know this uniting motivator of relational ethics? Consider how the Apostle Paul speaks of this maker in Romans 11. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Do you know this Lord who lacks nothing? Whom Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Who is able to give a gift to a God like this, which indebts that God to you? Who is able to offer him a token which is meant to stimulate his generosity towards us? Whose perfection is so resplendent that it complements the eternal glory of the triune God? Who adds splendor to the God who existed for all of eternity? None of us do, but God in his mercy moved towards those who could offer nothing because of his love for his people. How much more should we who are not God and who share a lineage with our brothers and sisters recognize the relational responsibility we have to love those in our midst who lack what we think they should have? Jesus cared for us when we were not his neighbor, when we were far from him and his enemy by sharing with us what he himself earned and what our sins squandered, which is a perfect and intimate relationship with God the Father. 
He did it at great cost because he loved us and this should be the shaping influence of how we love others in our life. If you love justice, I invite you to come and love Jesus. Love the one who moves towards the needy in spirit and comforts them. If you have never come to this Jesus in faith, I encourage you to do it today to meet his wonderful mercy. And then we have the privilege of living that out. Now this prompts an important question. Who then is my neighbor? It's a reasonable question. And it's a question a young lawyer actually asked Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus answered it in a very Jesus way by giving no answer. Instead, he gave a parable, a parable of the good Samaritan. And I'm not gonna go into the parable. Perhaps you know it. But what's significant at the end is Jesus asked the question, who then is considered the neighbor? And the man knows it. And to summarize the answer, the neighbor is the one who is near to you in regards to responsibility and need. The neighbor is the one who you have a particular responsibility for because of your proximity to them or the uniqueness of their need. So for you today, when you ask yourself, who is your neighbor? Think in terms of those who are nearest to you. If you're wondering who that is, the New Testament kind of gives us these spheres which go out from each other. And the goal is to just grow incrementally. And that first sphere is your family or maybe your roommates, kids in here. Do you treat your siblings who are younger than you, who have very little to offer you when it comes to playing Legos or playing football? Do you treat them? Do you pay attention to them like Jesus pays attention to them? to husbands towards your wives, for wives towards your husbands, from roommates to each other. The second sphere is the church. The New Testament authors expect that the primary place in which we practice paying attention to people with great equity is the church, that we actually have a responsibility for each other. And then it grows out and there's your neighborhood or maybe those you know at work and it continues to go out and out from there. And the reality is you can't take care of the needs or be friends with everyone, but God in his providence, Acts 17 says, says that he has placed you in your particular home and drawn the certain boundary lines of your life so that you might be able to see people and care for them as neighbors in whatever ways God has equipped you. That's how we're to view other people made in the image of God, cared for by Christ and loved on by us. But now Solomon turns to how we're to view our own lives. Read with me our next passion of Proverbs 14, verses 22 through 25. Do they not go astray who devise evil? Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. And here we see our second point today, that relational wisdom is realizing that our actions matter. And as relational wisdom doesn't always look out, it has to look in. I love how Solomon opens this passage here because he talks in verse uh, 22 about those who devise evil. I love that phrase because we've all encountered the devises of evil. My wife and I watched something a couple weeks ago which showed the depth at which those phone scammers calling you saying you have an Amazon rebate 
or Amazon return refund coming towards you, the length at which their schemes go. They prey, particularly on the elderly. They call them and they say that they're due a refund. And so they offer the help to them for them to get money back that they didn't know was theirs. And to do this, they help them download a program that's gonna walk it through it. And that program gains access to their browser as they open up bank account information. They say, all you have to do is issue these funds to us and they issue the funds, but they mess up the code on the webpage and they make it show as if the $10 they were supposed to pay back was actually $1,000. And now they say, you've given $1,000. I'm gonna get fired. I ruined this. I'm gonna lose my job. And they convince the people that they need to just pay back the money that they accidentally just overpaid. And they say, well, to do this, you need to send us a cash because right now I'm on the line for all this money. And if this doesn't work, my kids aren't, they literally, this is how they talk, my kids aren't gonna be able to eat. And so these flustered people send thousands of dollars in cash through the mail to call centers in India. It is a brilliant device and incredibly profitable. How many of you devise evil like this? How many of us devise good like this? That's what Solomon's after. Those who devise good. Why? Why ought we to go to such great lengths to devise what is good? And this is why God is so wonderfully amazing. We go through great lengths for what is righteous and good because the reward is steadfast love and faithfulness. The reward of pursuing God is that we get that relational connection with God. That every step we take to devise good, we realize that God is incredibly satisfying. That living life according to his standards and pursuing good as he has pursued good towards us reminds us that God is good all over the place. And so what does it look like to devise good like this? I think that's an excellent conversation for you to have on your car ride home or at community group this week. Because there's all sorts of answers to what it looks like to devise good. But what's interesting is Solomon gives us two answers of what this looks like immediately in the text. The first example of what it looks like to devise good is work hard. Look at Proverbs 14, verses 23 through 24. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. Now remember, Solomon just told us that we ought to share what we have with those who have not. But here he prevents us from thinking that we could just sit around on our hands and wait for someone else to give us what we need. He says, work, work hard. Now poverty is not a sin. In fact, Solomon, Jesus, James, all warn of the difficulties of being rich and actually recommend that it is safer, easier, and better to often live as poor than it is to live as a rich person. More than that, how much or how little you have is from God himself. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says that what you have and what you make and what you possess is not a result of you, it is the gift of God. Some people have much, some people have little. And this is where it's important to note in today's political world 
that poverty itself is not always a sign of injustice. It is true that injustice preys on poverty. It is true that injustice can compound poverty. But Jesus himself says the poor you will always have. And to say that someone's economic status is a one-to-one parallel with how they are valued is to make a point the Bible never makes. Instead, there will be those who make more. And there will be those who make less. Both need Jesus. Both can honor God. Both are to walk in righteousness, justice, and equity. And both are to work. However, Proverbs does make it clear that sometimes poverty is not part of God's gift. Sometimes poverty is the fruit of your foolish actions. The one who refuses to work, the sluggard and the sloth, reap their own folly. They are a folly of fools that brings folly. I love how Solomon is just brilliant in language and then we get sentences like that. But it drives home the point, doesn't it? Fool, fool, fool. Talk is cheap, Solomon says. His conclusion toil and trust God. The wise earn their wealth. It is their crown, and so too can you. Now we need to qualify this, because there are other Proverbs that speak to this too. Not everyone will be wealthy, but Solomon's point here is that the wise are diligent to work, and in that they find their reward. They find God's steadfast love and faithfulness. They find that God is providing for them at every turn, but the fool who refuses to work is met at every turn with folly. You were made to work. Proverbs speaks a lot about that. Even the wealthy, even those who are retired and are working not to earn a paycheck, but to provide for others. God wants you to work. He wants you to toil. Why? Because we were made to work and contribute to the glory of God and the needs of others. We will work in the new heavens and the new earth. We worked in the garden before sin ever came. Work is part of God's plan for us. And as we work hard, we're able to provide for our own needs. And by God's grace, those who are provided with more can provide for the needs of others. As Christians, we ought to be diligent to use our wages in a way that is faithful to God and faithful to others generously, willingly. Look at what Proverbs 22 verse 9 says. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. How do you devise good? Work hard, trust in Jesus for your provision, and be generous with what you have. The second principle of dividing good returns back to the issue of favoritism or partiality. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 25. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. First principle is work hard. The second principle, speak up. Don't be a vehicle for injustice, but instead speak what is true, even if it's less rewarding than what is false. That biblical word equity we saw in Proverbs chapter one and chapter two is again used in Proverbs 8, 6, where it's translated as the one who just speaks what is true, who speaks what is fair. And the gates of the city in Proverbs, whenever you're reading Proverbs and it's talking about the gates, the gates um, were the public courthouse. It's where you went when there was uh, a disagreement on wages or a conflict or a crime And unfortunately, one common occurrence in ancient Israel was that hired workers were often denied their pay by the people who employed them. 
In fact, in Proverbs, the word translated as oppressed has deep economic meaning in it. They are being oppressed because they're not being paid at all or they're not being paid what was promised. And look at how this theme of giving false witness in the courts is tied in Proverbs 19, again, to the friendship. This is the passage we already read. But notice how corollary to befriending those who have not is resisting the desire to speak what is untrue for your own gain. Look at Proverbs 19, where it actually read verses four through nine. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many seek the favor of a generous man. Everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. Whoever gets sense loves his own soul, and he who keeps understanding will discover good. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. Look again at this issue in Proverbs 22, verse 22. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. So that is where witnesses are brought. What's the principle here? That we would see and say, along with what is true, even if it's difficult. To speak politically for a moment, which I know you guys are just longing for that today, um, is that to model this principle, it looks like responsibly speaking out to a point where we might say policy might not be helping here or this policy might actually be increasing the problem. But it also looks like opening our eyes to our neighbors and saying in truthfulness that there are issues here that somehow in some way need to be addressed. You see, such truth doesn't fit into our neatly packaged political parties today. In fact, it might make you wildly unpopular inside of them. But it fits perfectly in God's framework for relational wisdom. You see, it's true that cheaper goods and political clout might come by a little bit of suppression of our mouth here, by a little defrauding there. But as Christians, we see that these riches gained hastily do not profit. But biblical wisdom opens our eyes to witness what we see in the lives of those around us and to speak wisely towards it. We are not biased towards the rich, nor are we skewed to the poor. Instead, over all things, we are faithful to the God who is just and righteous in himself. You see, there's an important challenge and relief for us in this text today. And that challenge is that we as Christians, you ought to be involved personally as it relates to justice and social aid in the degree that God brings it to you. But it also relieves the infinite burden of knowing injustice exists in the world and being frantic of trying to play whack-a-mole to right every wrong because the primary responsibility is that which is known and nearest to you. The witness at the gate is not called because he has no information. He is not called from another city. 
He is called because he knows and has something to offer in this particular instance, which means when you assess your spheres of life we talked about earlier and you look out into the world and you begin to see that there is no one out there who has lack, that there is no one out there who perhaps is being treated differently than you, that there is no one out there who has nothing to offer in that friendship equation, it might be not that you have walked into the sphere of perfect justice by your own might, it might be that you are terrible at befriending those who God has called you to befriend. And yet there's relief. You don't have to start this process by being concerned of all of the world's injustice. But you do have to wrestle with the prejudice inside your own heart and move faithfully in that sphere. We cannot and will not be able to make all injustice justice, but we can influence with righteousness in the places that God has handpicked us. You see, in this area of responsibility, of wisdom's relational ethics, we can boil it down into three clauses. So how do we as Christians live this relational ethic life, relational ethic out in the lives of others, in our own lives? Three things. We are to be as faithful to God as we can with what resources God has given us in the community God has placed us. We are to be as faithful to God as we can with what resources God has given to us, and that's not just financial, in the community in which God has placed us. That's what we're to assess. Now, this is impossible to do unless we understand where Solomon lands the plane here. And this is our last point today. Relational wisdom is realizing that God matters. Proverbs 14, verses 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So here we have verse after verse after verse after verse after verse, I think five verses that discuss issues of generosity and poverty and depression and lying and ethics. And it's concluded by two powerful verses on the fear of the Lord. We've defined fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs as a reverent reliance upon God, trusting that God is able to keep all of his promises to us if we do the difficult work of trusting in him because we stand in Jesus Christ. And here we see that the fear of the Lord does two things as it relates to our relational wisdom. The first thing it does is the fear of the Lord comforts us. The fear of the Lord gives us strong confidence and provides refuge for our children. As much as our world loves justice, it thinks little of righteousness. But biblically speaking, you can't separate the twos. Where justice is apart from righteousness, conflict will inevitably happen. But where justice and righteousness coexist in God's word, Christians, the ones who see God, have clarity. And there will be times where our responsibility to care for others in a world where justice and righteousness are detached, where those instances of care look different than what the world says care should look like. There will be times where helping the poor, living generously, befriending the weak, caring for the afflicted, choosing what is righteous, just, and equitable might put you at distinct odds with the consumer comforts of your life. Where you might not look like someone who has the social capital to be where you want to be. 
There might be times where walking in righteousness and devising what is good will cost you relationships and even your job. But in those moments, we drive our hope deep into the fear of the Lord, that the Lord will not forsake those who seek what is righteous. And for those who seek Christ, we have a righteousness which delivers us from death itself. Our greatest problem is not the injustice of the world, but the divine justice of God, which hangs over the head of each and every one of us. But for those who come to Christ by faith, Christ is sufficient to share with us his abundant life because he took the just punishment for our sins. All of our thoughts on justice, all of our interactions with the world do not point to a political party or to our own preference or to our own arrogance. They point to the God who stands as the judge of all things. For Proverbs 29 verse 26 says this, many seek the face of a ruler but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. The God who is just causes justice to exist. He is the basis of justice. And what does that mean for the believer? Look back at Proverbs 14, verse 31. Verse 32, excuse me. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing but the righteous finds refuge in his, and in the Hebrew, this is his own, the righteous man's death. What an odd proverb. It's not all what we'd think would be said. We'd think it says, the wicked are overthrown in their righteousness, but the righteous are delivered by their righteousness. Instead, he says, the wicked are overthrown, the righteous are gonna die. Sweet! He says, there's a reward. What is that promise? The promise is not that we will accomplish full justice in this world. The promise, the thing that we rejoice in is that one day God will. The wicked will be destroyed and the righteous who are hidden in Christ find refuge in their death. Brothers and sisters, when we look across the span of church history, we see hope not just for the marginalized who are apart from us, but we see the hope for the church which is often marginalized. We see hope not only for who we move towards, we see deep hope for ourselves. It means in the same moment, the wicked are judged. In Christ, the righteous are justified. Not by what we did, not by our righteousness, but by what Christ did for us. We can look at passages where justice is promised to roll like a river and we know this is not a wish dream. We know that every person who has defrauded an elderly over the phone, everyone who has oppressed the weak, every sword that has been wetted with the blood of an innocent, all of those things will be righted. Wrongs will be poured back upon those. But what a wonderful truth that the wrongs we have done have been poured out on Christ in our stead. Justice flows from the cross. Justice will reign because God will reign. Here is the hope to come and hide in the cross of justice. Here is the hope of being delivered even in your death. Here is Christ the King who comforts us. The fear of the Lord comforts us. The next thing the fear of the Lord does in application is the fear of the Lord compels us. Solomon says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. If we know what Christ has done, 
to deliver us from death and bring us eternal life, that we have been hidden in his redemption, that God will ultimately defend the cause of the oppressed. We don't need to fear oppression as we seek to live godly lives. We don't need to fear to follow Jesus, to love others if it meets social anxiety on both sides of the spectrum. Why? Because we turn away from sin and we fear no consequence. We care for our neighbor as God has called us to and we know that this fountain of life that we're living from will never run dry even though it seems that we are pouring out and pouring out and in our pouring out we might be marginalized by our political allies, we might be marginalized by our religious allies but Christ says, well done. This fountain of life will never be a desert though this world is. And so we pursue wisdom, righteousness, justice, and equity, even though we know none of those things will be finally and fully accomplished until God does it in the last day. We pursue what is righteous in our hearts. We pursue what is loving towards others, and we produce what is worshipful towards God, even if it looks insignificant in our days. Look how Jesus speaks of this motivation in Luke 12, or 14, verses 12 through 14. Jesus said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you and in return you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Brothers and sisters, here is the hope of relational wisdom hidden in Christ, that we turn away from what the world says is rich and near and familial, and we turn instead to what they often say is foreign and poor and afflicted, for we know that we will receive our reward at the resurrection of the just, when those who are weak and poor and afflicted have been ransomed and redeemed by the blood of the one who was slain for us. And this is what shapes our hope and actions as individuals and our witness as the church. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you make us wise in righteousness, justice, and equity. Lord, in a world that demands us to conform to a standard of justice, which is either baptized in false religiosity or false political messiahship, that we would choose to see justice as you have given it to us in wisdom, that it is bigger, that it is nearer, that it starts in more simpler ways that those who know nothing about policy can live lives of justice as we befriend those who are nearest to us. But Lord, most importantly, we pray as we move towards those in our world and pay attention to them in a distinct way that we are met by the attentive gaze of Christ, that we encounter his immense pleasure even as we perhaps face the displeasure of those nearest to us. We pray all these things for your glory, knowing that because there is a resurrection of the just, that not one good deed will not be repaid in glory. 
We pray all this in your name. Amen.